the young voters decision was more of a perception vote rather than real political transaction. People are tired of systemic corruption. They have been for a long time. Romania isn't uh, Moldova's greatest ally in the EU, kind of advocating for Europeanization. Then what does Moldova have? She was elected in the dirtiest campaign with most attacks against a woman that I ever faced in this country. I'm your regular host, Kevin Rothrock, which is English language managing editor. But today, I'm just here to welcome you to the show and confirm that you are indeed listening to the Naked Pravda podcast. This episode is hosted by Eilish Hart, our news editor, and it's all about the presidential election in Moldova that wrapped up on November 15th. There's a lot ahead on the show, so I'll let Eilish take it away. Hello everyone, this is Medusa News Editor Eilish Hart. You may remember me as the host of our recent episode of The Naked Pravda about the political crisis in Kyrgyzstan. This week, I'm back to cover the results of the presidential elections in Moldova, which ended on November 15th after two rounds of voting. Moldovan citizens at home and abroad first went to the polls on November 1st, and although they had many candidates to choose from, former Prime Minister Maya Sandu won the vote by about 36%, putting her just ahead of the incumbent president, Igor Dodon, who gained just shy of 33%. During the runoff vote two weeks later, Moldovan citizens came out in record-breaking numbers and elected their first woman president. Maya Sandu won 57.75% of the vote, putting her well ahead of Igor Dodon's 42.25%. That's the short version of the story. So to fill in the background and find out what we can expect from Maya Sandu during her presidency, I invited four experts on the show to talk about all things Moldova. President Igor Dodon uh, back in March worked with the government to kind of briefly issue emergency measures. But kind of overall, there was very little effort on the part of the government to contain the pandemic and then also to kind of put norms in place that were based on science um, to help, you know, contain the pandemic. That's Gina Lentine, Senior Program Officer for Europe and Eurasia at Freedom House, where she works on democracy development and human rights in Eastern Europe. However, one important thing to note, and this is something that Freedom House highlighted in its recent election media watch report, which covers Moldova, and then also a special report we did about democracy under lockdown, is that worldwide, countries that were putting in emergency measures to deal with the coronavirus, did them in a way that, in fact, restricted human rights and fundamental freedoms, unduly so. And Moldova was one of 80 countries that fell into this category. Probably the biggest challenge we saw kind of in, you know, kind of under pandemic conditions, and then also kind of in the lead up to the elections was the restriction of journalists' access to information. 
falls, you know, in kind of, in kind of under the category of freedom of the media. And this is, of course, a longstanding challenge in Moldova, given how polarized the media environment is. As you know, the political figures and oligarchs still own uh, the majority of the television stations uh, for which these are the uh, main sources of information for many people uh, in Moldova, particularly in the regions, um, and then also particularly among kind of the Russian-speaking population. So, you know, this is kind of a, you know, this is kind of an underlying problem. But then access to information was kind of made even more challenging due to the fact that you know, journalists from the opposition and independent media are often denied this access to information and entry to government institutions. But then, you know, this was an early target of Moldova's pandemic-related restrictions because Igor Dodon and other politicians allowed very selective access to press conferences and then also provided conflicting information when journalists were allowed into those press conferences and then oftentimes didn't allow journalists to ask questions. To get some more details about what it was like covering the Moldovan election, I reached out to journalist Alina Radu, co-founder and CEO of the Moldovan investigative weekly Ziarul de Garda. As a side note, in our conversation, you'll hear me refer to this newspaper as Zedige for short. We are covering elections all the time since 2004 when we started this, this project. But it was difficult because of COVID-19 pandemics. Many institutions were closed or many public officials didn't want to talk to reporters, to critical reporters, to investigative reporters, uh, saying they are not in the office, saying that they can't give an interview, saying that it is hard to answer to all the questions. But the worst investigative reporting, it's not only, you know, calling an official and uh, asking, requesting some information. We should cover illegal things and it is so hard to cover illegal things during the pandemics when every official, if he has a bad intention, he just has more opportunities or more possibilities to hide himself, to hide data, to hide money and to hide all illegal things. And then it is so hard for reporters to, to look for all this data and to find them. It was the most difficult elections we had. I saw an, an article that Zedige had published debunking false information about Maya Sandu and her campaign during the elections. Was this a big part of the reporting you did? debunking information that was coming from the different political parties? Actually, as reporters, we should treat equally each candidate. And it was first time when it was totally difficult because one of the candidates was spreading mostly fake information and the distortion information, misinformation. And another tried to be quite correct. And we have to look critically to all of them. But we found ourselves that we should help society to understand this. So we should debunk fake news spread from one candidate about another candidate. You also did reporting about like campaign donations that covered every single candidate. Was it easier to... I guess, follow the money than to to debunk fake news? It was uh, really complicated to follow the money because uh, the Moldovan justice system doesn't work properly. So it was clear that those money that were declared to elections system by reports of the political parties were not 
all the money that were spent by some political parties, political entities, and then uh, you should follow much more than uh, a report. You should follow the non-declared money. Mm-hmm. And how do you do it when it is pandemics, when uh, it is like prohibited to go everywhere and to see everywhere and it is difficult to have an interview with everybody. In the first round, we had a lot of candidates mm-hmm. and it means a lot of work because as reporters, we now we have a big audience and people have the right to know about all candidates or each candidate specifically if he was involved in corruption scandals, how much money does he spend, how much transparency is in his campaign. So there is one effort to cover eight candidates and another effort is to cover two candidates. So the first round was difficult because we had to cover many candidates and uh, we should put a lot of effort covering this only for two weeks because we knew after that it would not be important. While during the second round, it was like all the information already known. And uh, we thought it would be not so much work because we had only two candidates about whom we already had published a lot of information and news. But then it started as a huge mad machine while one of the candidates was spreading so much fake news and so much wrong actions everywhere we found ourselves you know you lose the ground we, we we couldn't manage to do all the work we supposed to do because those who spread fake news actually turn out your agenda you plan to work on this story but you get up in the morning and find more and more fi- fake news And every day we had to adjust our plans. So the the last two weeks of the campaign were really crucial, not only for candidates, not only for citizens to understand what happens, but also for reporters to understand what we choose to cover now. How do we manage to cover as much as possible? Does Maya Sandu and her campaign have a better relationship with the media in terms of actually answering journalists' questions and being more open or at least willing to talk? In 2016, in November, uh, Maya Sandu and Igor Dodon were the, the two candidates. And this year again, they were the two candidates. So we sent to both of the candidates the same 10 questions. Hmm. And uh, in 2016, only Maya Sandu answered our questions and Igor Dodon didn't. And we published in our newspaper a very interesting project. The same 10 questions and one one side Maya Sando answered and on the next side we placed a blank page with the portrait of Igor Dodon and we said this is the answer of him to you. And this year we just repeated that project. We asked the same questions to both candidates and again Maya Sando answered all the questions while Igor Dodon didn't answer no one, and we published again a blank page with his portrait saying this was his answer to, to your question. So you see the difference only from this project.
both in the uh, in the first round of the elections and in the runoff. The OSCE ODIR and NMO sent international observation missions. The local NGO Promolex in Moldova, um, which is a human rights NGO that specializes in election monitoring, all had monitoring missions around both sets of the elections. It's worth mentioning that OSCE ODIR and NMO's reports determined that Overall, these elections were relatively free and fair with very few irregularities, which is, I would say, you know, I think that that's something worth noting given Moldova's past kind of pattern of, you know, of fraud and irregularities in, in, in elections. We have seen improvement over, you know, over the last several years. However, one of the biggest challenges continue to be the polarized media environment then also to divisive rhetoric kind of among politicians and, you know, the different kind of political factions and parties. And then also to, this is a perennial challenge, the the challenges that voters in the diaspora face when it comes to casting their vote. This has long been infamous for being a highly disorganized process, very long queues, you know, people will wait four to five hours you know, typically, and of course, under pandemic conditions, you know, this is even kind of more stressful, given that, you know, you have many people kind of on top of each other waiting to cast their vote. And then, of course, too, there were some questions um, that came up about campaign financing. Again, this is a, you know, this is kind of a longstanding challenge that's kind of dogged Moldova around elections. Promolex had kind of a more negative opinion um, about the way these elections were managed. However, you know, in a lot of ways that makes sense because they're a lot closer to the action. But I think that, you know, the kind of level of kind of like freeness and fairness is underscored by the fact that at the end of the day, Maya Sandu was victorious in the election. Now, I think this wasn't necessarily the outcome that all of us were expecting. I think that, you know, many of the pundits and others, and even too, if you were talking to some civil society actors in Moldova, the prediction was Igor Dodon will win a second term. It's funny because I think I was one of those people who was optimistic. I, you know, I said to myself, he could win a second term. He won't necessarily win a second term. And I think that, you know, of course, you know, in the in the first round of elections, they came within, you know, a percentage point of each other. And of course, neither reached the threshold to, you know, win the presidency at that time. But I think the thing that really put Maya Sandu over the top was the mobilization of the diaspora voters, you know, despite the challenges that they face, you know, and I think that, again, that outcome and the mobilization of those voters is a testament to, you know, how elections have improved in Moldova. So when you have all the like pundits and analysts predicting that Dodon's going to win, my first question is, is that people in Moldova making those predictions or is that people abroad? And then was that expectation premised on the fact that people didn't think the elections were going to be free or fair? Or was there some other reason they thought Dodon was going to pull through? I think part of that sentiment is, is kind of voiced by people abroad. I think that 
you know, often analysts and others who aren't kind of as close to the situation, whether it's through, you know, frequent site visits to the region or frequent contact with local actors, I think it's easier to sort of sit from a farther vantage point and say, well, Dodon is going to win because Moldova has a reputation of, you know, having irregularities and challenges in its voting. And, you know, again, there was at least kind of from the more distant vantage point, there is this expectation of, well, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's so much institutional corruption, kind of endemic corruption. This is, you know, this outcome is a fait accompli. And I think that talking to civil society actors, you get a slightly different story. And, you know, I think that it actually paints a more, a much more accurate picture, which is that, you know, people are tired of systemic corruption. They have been for a long time. Following Gina's advice about the importance of civil society perspectives, I spoke to Anna Indoitu, the director of a Moldovan youth NGO called Invento, which is dedicated to social justice and educating young people about democracy and law. If you really read the the program, the presidential program brought by Maya Sandu is uh, really wrapped also around economic promises for young people. But it's not targeted only on them, which is leading me to the next 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 aspect because the young voters' decision was more of a perception vote rather than real political transaction because actually there wasn't very high promises for young people. It was ambiguous enough to put it uh, mildly because we had uh, young people um, who were analyzing. Um, the both programs of the president candidates and the um, Dodon's uh, program was into more detail than Maya Sandu's uh, promises. Therefore, we had our own critiques of the program, but rather for the perception to vote against the status quo, to vote for the uh, Euro-Atlantic strategic uh, positioning of the country. That's from where I could see the vote coming more. So you said Dodon's, his outlined agenda was more detailed. Was that reflected during his time as president? Like, did he give, you know, young people any reason to believe that he would keep good on these promises that he's making in his campaign? Definitely not. And this eventually was sanctioned through this vote because uh, he uh, had ambitious enough of goals in the initial mandate, which you, we even did the fact-checking as to analyzing the political platform in the first mandate from 2016. And if my memory doesn't fail me now, it was actually only four promises that were kept out of over 16 or something in this uh, range. So it it's not that, I mean, not very many young people actually, uh, again, did this fact-checking and uh, really matched the initial promises with the existing realities. But I think, again, Dodon's evaluation and appreciation of young people was more of his communication, political communication and behavior in the public rather than the, let's say, 
exact accomplishments because uh, young people eventually have more education in order to understand that the presidential institution really it's not in there to have the capacity to generate uh, new policy reforms and so on so having these premises this understanding a high expectation wasn't set from the beginning it was more about the the representation the image that it holds and the behavior in the public space which lately in the covid pandemic actually mm, revealed much more of his uh, communication his poor communication actually to to the young public we've seen um, invento has been mentioned in the presidential com- indirect presidential campaign because the the Igor Dodon's camp had uh, a whole strategy on denigrating civil society and attacking it and making out of it an enemy towards the development of the country and they even went to such a level of extremity that they wrote a book that really took out all the data on the how much grant how many grants NGOs consume in Moldova who are the Soros founded networks and uh, influencers who just on the call would make revolutions such as in Belarus and so on so they made a huge story out of it and Invento I mean I was mentioned in there in this so-called book where they actually attack civil society and bring even data the the so-called data in terms of how much money we're actually uh, consuming while instead uh, this money should be uh, given to the state and the state should actually uh, improve life conditions and so on so it's a whole story they've built and it's funny in the same time because we never took it seriously as an organization but on the other side where would that have gone if the president would be re-elected. We know as civil society that with the election of Maya Sandu, we shall remain, as I said, in another circumstance, vigilant. She is keen. She is open to or, to work with civil society. But on the same level of understanding, we are conscious that at the moment she commits a mistake or she behaves in an untransparent, not accountable manner and so on, then we have to to be there to be loud. With Maya Sandu, for sure, there will be no shrinking space for civil society. And this is something that we are appreciative of. Well, in the same time, we understand that there is still an opportunity for us in this moment to become an actor in the partnership between the power and society because building uh, through partnership a vision of concrete steps and so on, it really would make us have better solutions. When you read about politics in Moldova, Maya Sandu and Igor Dadan are often framed as these kind of polar opposites. And this election was no exception. Maya Sandu was presented as this pro-EU, anti-corruption politician versus Dadan, who was painted as pro-Russia. I wanted to know if this was actually a relevant issue during the election, if people going to the polls were actually concerned about the country's geopolitical direction. And I got some interesting answers from the experts I spoke to. Quite clearly, there's a a different geopolitical difference between Dodon, who is quite clearly oriented more towards Russia and has in the past been quite scaremongering about what Europeanization looks like and, and often sees 
relations with Romania as a kind of a, a Trojan horse of Europeanization or vice versa, that Europeanization is really a Trojan horse of Romanianization. And on the other hand, Maya Sandu, I mean, I think it's fair to call her pro-European, but uh, pro-EU, pro-West, pro-US. But I would also say that one thing that I think is often missed is that she just wants a more balanced foreign policy that isn't kind of orienting Moldova solely in one direction. That's my fourth and final guest, Dr. Ellie Knott, an assistant professor in qualitative methods at the London School of Economics, whose research focuses on ethnic politics, citizenship, and kin-state relations in post-Soviet space. But I've been saying this for a really long time, and I think increasingly now, particularly in this coverage, you also get people saying it's not just about geopolitics. And I think often geopolitics is used as a veil to disguise it's easy for the Dodon campaign to can say that to say that this is all about geopolitics, or it's easy for Western observers to say this is all about geopolitics because it leaves aside some of the harder questions, which is reform, anti-corruption, judicial reform, democratization. And I think really this election is is much more about when we think of kind of domestic preferences for no longer thinking that stealing is okay at the elite level for really cleaning up what Moldova means and and the relationship between elites and society, that that elites aren't just there to kind of capture the state and to make the state work for their interests and to to steal money from the state and to steal power, but also that there's kind of a social contract. And I think Sandu is really about kind of economic reform and also anti-corruption reform. And those two things kind of go hand in hand. You can't have a state that's capable of providing for its citizens if it's also stealing from its citizens and stealing from, you know, banks at the same time. But I think it's often the way that Moldova is read by Western audiences, because by if we understand it as geopolitically important, then it becomes important for us. We have to see it through the lens of geopolitics. Otherwise, Moldova is just marginal. We don't have to care about it. And I, I actually think when we think about democratization, that it it's a much weaker argument if we kind of ignore those domestic preferences, because it's explaining a lot more about some of the tensions that are going on that are actually much more important to reform than the kind of geopolitical lens as well. There's what I call this false dichotomy that, you know, that politicians in Moldova have used to, I think, divide society, but then also kind of divide or maybe kind of confuse, you know, opinions or understanding among international stakeholders as well. And that kind of pro-EU versus pro-Russian paradigm kind of is at the heart of, of this false dichotomy. Language politics also play a role, again, creating kind of creating this kind of false division between Romanian speakers and those who kind of maybe sympathize more with Romania or so-called pro-EU values versus those who are Russian speakers who, you know, by default, they must, you know, kind of by, you know, virtue of the language they choose to speak at home, align themselves um, more with Russia. And really, this is you know, I think that that this this is a tool and a tactic. The key problem in Moldova is, you know, continue continue to be the the level of kind of 
not just institutional corruption, but how politicians and oligarchs in the country would enrich themselves off of these institutions and also too would engage in offshore dealings with countries, you know, with countries such as Russia to, you know, to, you know, to, to steal from their own country. So I strongly feel, again, based on kind of my own analysis, uh, my discussions, you know, with, with friends and colleagues among civil society, that this really is a false dichotomy that aims to distract us from the critical issues. Our conversation about geopolitics quickly turned into one about identity politics and the internal divisions Moldova faces. I would also say that, and this was true of the 2016 campaign as well, that the the campaign discourses, particularly from the socialists and from Dodon, were very negative and divisive. And so this is also election against kind of being so divisive that Sandu was faced with kind of ongoing claims. Again, these were made in 2016 as well as 2020 about her personal circumstances, about the fact that she's not married and these kind of false accusations about what a Sandu presidency would look like in terms of bankruptcy of Moldovan producers, attacks on the church, promotion of LGBT ideology, kind of, again, seeing her almost as a kind of Trojan horse for these factors. So I think also the Sandu campaign was about more coming together against this kind of rhetoric of divisiveness. And I think you see that. And I think it's something, again, that's not been so covered is I, I don't want to claim that this is the first time this has happened, but it's certainly in the last 10 years for a pro-European anti-corruption party to have election materials in Russian and to be speaking in Russian and to make th- those kind of bridges. I think it's actually quite clever because it allows Dodon to not be the only one who's making claims in Russian language as well and to to be actually able to dispute some of those and to do that kind of bridge building in a way that it's not only trying to overcome some of those divisiveness and kind of putting people together in, in different kind of competing camps, but also crossing that bridge and saying like, well, we're, all, we're not kind of trying to divide you in the same way um, that the socialists are doing. And I and I think you kind of see that in the electoral results as well. I think where Sandu was winning is actually quite surprising. Is the language issue something that's instrumentalized in Moldovan politics usually, like uh, Romanian versus Russian, or is it more so that Russian gets marginalized? I mean, in a sense, there's two debates going on. There's the Moldovan versus Romanian language debate, and whether whether the the limba de stat, the language of the state, is Romanian or Moldovan. And then there's this issue of minorities as well and, and how Russian is still a language of interethnic communication, though I would also say English is a language of interethnic communication, and how that's often seen as reproducing kind of Soviet legacies that people feel uncomfortable with. But on the same time, is the language that a lot of minorities speak in and a lot of uh, people that would identify as Moldovan would speak in as well. And, and I think particularly outside Chisinau, or even within Chisinau, let's be honest, that there are huge portions of, of people that live in Chisinau that are also Russian speaking. And to not have multilingual politics and to have have people on the pro-European side of the spectrum not really engaged with Russian speaking politics, it has been an absence. And I think it's interesting that Sander is realising that this is... You don't always have to like kind of just 
silo yourself and only and only speak in Romanian, you can also kind of actively seek those votes. In international media coverage, I found they, they tended to highlight, you know, this diaspora vote outside of Moldova and then as well as the Transnistria vote as kind of two crucial factors in this election. I think what you see in the Transnistria vote and the diaspora vote is just two very different ends of the extreme. And the Transnistria vote is not massive. I think it's about 30,000 people that they were able to mobilize. Whereas the diaspora vote is just huge. What was it like over mm, 230,000 people or something voting in the diaspora? And not obviously, but like the the people voting in Transnistria are voting much more for Dodon and people voting in diaspora are voting, you know, overwhelmingly for for Sandu, like 93% in the, the second round voted for Sandu. And I think that on the one hand, what you see in Transnistria, I mean, again, these investigations kind of have to be executed going forward, but there is, there's pretty good evidence of kind of busing and vote buying. And I think they definitely try to do that to offset the diaspora vote, but we're talking about orders of magnitude difference, you know, 30,000 versus 230,000. And I also think it's interesting if you look at the way that the Dodon campaign tried to mobilize against diaspora voters as well. He talked about how diasporas were like a parallel electorate that they were in dissonance with the preferences of the country and basically were almost trying to subvert the real preferences of, of people that live within Moldova. And if anything, I think that really probably angered people in the diaspora who were not just angry at Dodon, not just anti- angry at corruption, but angry, you know, the reasons that people migrate out of Moldova, are a lot of push factors and, and often migrating into very difficult, sometimes illegal circumstances, often illegal circumstances. And to say that they don't represent local preferences is to ignore the fact that people often migrate because Moldova isn't providing opportunities at home. And often that diaspora themselves are providing remittances back. And and I think it's fair to say that it probably encouraged more turnout as well to have that kind of discourse that's very explicitly anti-diaspora. And I think similar to Transnistria, there's also evidence that, say, they, they tried to mobilize people in Russia, you know, within the diaspora in Russia as well to kind of, you know, there, were, there was the opening of more polling stations in Russia relative to polling stations in European countries in North America to, again, to try and potentially even out that diaspora vote that, that they assumed people in Russia would be more likely not to vote for Sandy. But I think it's it's... It's a game in a sense, right? Trying to offset different um, blocks against each other, trying to mobilize people against each other. And again, you see precisely the divisiveness that I think Sandu was trying to kind of shore up and to say we don't have to compete so explicitly. Since Maya Sandu is Moldova's first female president, I asked my guests to weigh in on the symbolic value that this has, as well as the practical challenges she's likely to face going forward. Yes, she is the first female president elected in Moldova, and she was elected in the dirtiest campaign with most attacks against a woman that I ever faced in this country because I'm covering elections for 30 years. Uh, meaning this country has 30 years and I covered uh, all elections it had as a reporter. And it was first time when so many attacks against a woman and these were totally, you know, I would say illegal attacks saying she's not married, she can't lead, she has no children, she can't lead. Uh, It was a lot of discussion about her capacity as a woman while nobody should discuss in 2020 uh, if a person is a man or a woman and can a person lead a country if has one or another gender. 
However, I was really surprised to see even not only young people supporting Maya Sandu as a good candidate, but also elder people who were saying, yes, we come from Soviet Union era when uh, women were considered only to stay home or something, but we appreciate her education and uh, her integrity. It seems uh, Maya Sandu is totally, absolutely different on on this, on her capacity to fight corruption. And uh, everybody will say that integrity is uh, the best word that Maya Sandu might be described for now. As journalists, we should look critically to any government and to Maya Sandu as well. We know that the position of the president doesn't offer you too much or too many possibilities to work because Moldova is a parliamentary country. But the best thing happened to Moldova now is there is a person about whom everybody might say that she's a symbol of integrity and fighting corruption. Even the most corrupt politicians would say that. This means something is is changing in the mind of people Finally, people understand that a non-corrupt person might exist on the top position, and it is the very good. It does make us as women proud, and it raises solidarity of this pride to be where by us. It happens so that when I was in high school, I was part of a program where Maya Sandu was invited as a speaker. And she came, uh, we were a group of young women, and it, it was a leadership for women program. And she came 2013, at a distance of seven years, just returned home and so on. And you could see even then her her dedication, her character, to put it that way, because she she has an attitude that, that was seen and that was admired. And we could see her transformation as a woman across all these years. And I believe it sends a message to all girls and women from the country that there is place for women at the table of, of power, even in the position of power, because this is still uh, an issue in the country, having very high numbers on domestic violence against women, which shows the, the way women are treated in the society. So it is a historical momentum for us and for the women, the girls in the country. It does empower us to be a consequent in our ambitions, in our work, and in our family as well. I will be in the position to remain pragmatic and not so much to to take this victory as, let's say, a meaningful transformation of the country. There is a system in place which uh, I'm afraid could really ridicule her in a way at a certain point when, I mean, the parliamentary majority would really... Uh, make her not uh, accomplish her objectives. But for sure, her election has sent a message worldwide about a politician of her caliber to be elected, to represent uh, the people who are tired of 
self-interest politics and who are really expecting different. And then from this expectation to really materialize into policy reforms, government agenda and so on, there's a long road to go. Moldova is still a very patriarchal society where women women face many challenges, not only in politics, but within kind of social life in general. So I think it is really symbolic of what women can do become office holders. I also think it's symbolic just in the number of votes that she got, not just in the diaspora at home as well. Like her vote share massively increased from what she was able to get in 2016. And she is now the candidate who's won the most amount of votes ever as a as a presidential candidate. Now, I think it's also important to remember that Moldova for a long time didn't have an elected president. It was a president kind of nominated by parliament. So we're really talking about 2016 and 2020. But I think the the increasing vote share that she got, that this wasn't just concentrated in Chisinau as an urban area, but this was, you know, spread, that she was increasing her leads um, across the country. And again, not just in the diaspora, also has kind of symbolic and probably agenda setting power in terms of the showing that preferences within Moldova are to move beyond kind of the socialist hold on power and to, towards economic reform and anti-corruption reform and judicial reform that have just stalled. I think this is a moment of hope. 2020 is a moment of hope for Sandu for, for you know, a package of reforms towards anti-corruption with limited capacity at this moment necessarily to enact those. But I think I really hope that that hope isn't lost and that hope isn't misplaced and that this is actually a moment for change because I think if it isn't and the system just kind of reproduces itself with different faces, I think it will be really difficult to to get back from that and to capture that kind of lost hope again. There are still certainly not enough women in power in Moldova. If you look kind of broadly at, you know, the percentage of women in who are who are MPs. But that said, you know, she has she was not the first woman to hold the prime minister's post, but holding, you know, holding the presidential post, while of course this does hold less power than the prime ministership, you know, this is still, you know, this is still, I think, a very important, not not just a symbol, but also kind of a sign of, you know, also a sign of progress. I think the thinking is that, oh, the executive, the executive branch isn't as, you know, isn't as strong. Therefore, you know, the the presidency kind of maybe isn't as important, but it is really important. She will still have a really important mandate, especially when it comes to Moldova's foreign relations and, you know, in particular, restoring its relationships uh, with nearby allies such as Romania and Ukraine. Previously, Igor Dodon had a rather isolationist foreign policy. Again, he... He did look a little bit towards Moscow, to use that expression that all of the pundits use. But um, overall, his foreign policy was quite isolationist, I would say. The second very good thing that Maya Sandu might do, and she's already doing, to restore the international communication of international institutions with Moldova, because... uh, Last president did very bad with international communication. He never visited nor Kiev nor Bucharest, the only two neighbors that Moldova has. He rarely visited uh, Brussels and had a very bad uh, communication with the EU institutions while he was visiting only Moscow without explaining too much why we should be connected so so much with 
country that is accused of corruption and violating human rights. For years, we fight corruption and we work for transparency. And actually, everybody, those who are pro-Moscow or pro-EU, everybody would say, yes, corruption is a problem in Moldova. And then why do we say that uh, we would like that society will go pro-EU? It's not because it's just a wish to become a member of EU. It's a wish to have standards. And EU for now has better standards of living, better standards of of, uh, fighting corruption. While Russia is a very corrupt country itself. So why should we go that direction to most corrupt uh, while we suffer from corruption already? And if we look at the historically, uh, Russia promised to take away the army from the territory of Republic of Moldova back in 92 and back in 94, and they never did it. So Russia never keeps the promise. Russia does only what she wants or she thinks. We should, we should look at the Russia from now as a troublemaker, and uh, we should act accordingly. I mean, the challenges that Sandu faces in office is that Moldova is not a presidential system. It's a semi-presidential system. Parliament holds most power. And on the one hand, that's probably a good thing in terms of constraining Dodon while he was in office, in terms of his capacity to eke out as much power of the system and to, to make Moldova more authoritarian and less democratic. But it also has the capacity, obviously, to to limit the capacity to enact positive reforms, to enact those democratizing, anti-corruption judicial reforms that that Sandy wants. So the the presidential powers are really one of kind of initiating legislation, negotiating international treaties, signing off on high appointments. But I think in the respect of being able to negotiate international treaties or work with international partners, I think it will show the EU and the US that Moldova, well, again, kind of normatively is on the right track, that this is now a, a country led by someone more responsible. So I think it will, again, not just be symbolic domestically, but also be symbolic and probably pragmatic internationally for Moldova to kind of restore some of those relations and to be taken more seriously. Between 2009 and probably even up to 2016, maybe 2013, Moldova had pretty good relations with, with Romania. Romania for good and worse, is kind of always willing to to work with Moldova. So I don't think that will be problematic. Do you think there is pragmatism in the Sandu camp to have those kind of pragmatic relations? And I think that even counts with Russia, right? Like Sandu has no interest in making an enemy out of Russia. It's just about kind of balancing and having multilateral foreign policy rather than investing solely in relations with Russia or... Potentially, again, as I said, I think geopolitics is often a veil for corruption, kind of suggesting investing in relations with with Russia, when really it's just about maintaining relations of corruption. And those might be with Romania, those might be with Russia. If you look at Sandy's Wikipedia page, I I couldn't find, I mean, there's some media evidence. It's pretty clear that Sandu may well also be a Romanian citizen. But that's no different from a lot of the politicians that have come before her, Yuriliang. And broadly, like, you know, one million people have probably gained Romanian citizenship in the last decade. I think it I think it gives Romania more 
power in Moldova than many often give it credit for. I think there's a lot of focus on Russia's relationship with of Moldova and how Russia is kind of always instrumentalizing its relationship with Moldova and doing so to pathological ends. I think there is a lot of potentially more invisible forms of dependency that Romania has really fostered with Moldova. And if we think about one of the main issues that Moldova faces, which is brain drain, you know, outward flow of migration, Romania's really contributed to that, if not kind of extracted Moldova's labor force through offering citizenship. I think there needs to be more scrutiny. I think I think Romania is always seen as a positive good in terms of its relations with Moldova. And I don't always think, I mean, I very rarely think, in fact, that Romania does this purely to be kind of healing wounds of historical injustice after the Second World War. I think it, it's doing so for quite instrumental political reasons. And yeah, as I said, to, to create this kind of relationship of dependence and extraction, because Moldova, it, it's almost, again, it's normalised because if Moldova doesn't foster these relations of dependency with Romania. And if Romania isn't uh, Moldova's greatest ally in the EU, kind of advocating for Europeanization, then what does Moldova have? It has has Russia. And so it's kind of seen as this way to modernize the labor force, to Europeanize Moldova from within. But again, I think you need to really look at what Romania is getting out of this. And I think Romania gets quite a lot out of it and often goes very much under the radar because we're focusing on Russia. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from four experts on Moldova and the nation's recent presidential elections. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It is our only English-language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. (laughs) 